0: Log Talk Radio. Folks, it's memory time, Eastern Airlines memory time. Every week at this time, we bring you memories of this great airline from the people who made it the great airline it was, still is, in the minds of its former employees. That's why we enjoy telling these stories every Monday night at 8 p.m. East Coast time. Harry Lindquist, a former Eastern Pilot Crew scheduler, and myself, Captain Neil Holland enjoy telling these stories, stories from pilots in the open cockpit mail wing planes into the prop era, and finally into the jet age, hostesses in the first passenger-carrying aircraft, to stewardesses in the great silver fleet of the DC-3s, Martin 404s, DC-4s, 6s, and 7s, and Lockheed Constellations. Finally, as flight attendants, in the prop jet Lockheed Electras, the Boeing 720s, 727, 757s, and 747s, to the Lockheed L-1011s, Douglas DC-8s, DC-10s, and the Airbus A300s. In many of these aircraft, Eastern was a launch customer. There were so many firsts for Eastern, it would be hard to tell in the length of these broadcasts. Our maintenance was second to none in the industry. Ditto for the advertising, marketing, and sales and reservation system. Eastern excelled. Yes, you can say that Eastern was truly a pioneer of many advancements in the airline industry. The story hasn't been completed, as many of us known as the Eastern family haven't completed that story. We would like to hear from you, your story, and memories of eastern it's very easy to share them with our listeners on these broadcasts by simply writing them and sending sending the stories to us at e neil holland at yahoo.com that's e n e a l h o l l a n d at yahoo.com we'll record your story and read on the air better yet Why not record your story in your own voice, and we'll play it on a future broadcast. The recording must be done in the MP3 or WAV format. Send the the copy of the recording, send to the above address, and we'll have you on the air telling your memories of the greatest airline ever. Now let's hear what we have recorded for you this week. No, this next story is not about the defeat of Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo, but the title, Waterloo, uh, was an article printed by and authored by Captain Jim Holder and printed in the magazine, the Retired Eastern Pilots Association's Repartee. On the last day of a long three-day trip, we awakened early in Atlanta, the morning of May 8, 1964, never dreaming that before sunset we would garner a certain amount of unwelcome publicity for Eastern Airlines and ourselves. As a very new Eastern co-pilot, I had only been flying the line for a few months. Most of my DC-7 trips out of Chicago, then a fairly good sized base, had been with new captains. As the 7, was a junior piece of equipment then. I had already flown several enjoyable trips with the captain on this flight, Charlie Mardikin. He certainly was entertaining, VFR mostly back in those days, so we had a lot of time to talk, as he had many stories about World War II. He had been a tail gunner on a B-17, his ground job at United Airlines, and his marital endeavors. He had many stories about the latter and was quite well known among the Chicago crews for repeatedly relating them. Anyhow, we departed Atlanta for our destination of Minneapolis-St. Paul, MSP, with stops in Chicago and MKE, Milwaukee. We were then to fly back to Chicago, arriving about 7 p.m., thus concluding a 12-hour day. Upon arriving in Chicago, we learned that some storms had been forming about halfway between Milwaukee and Minneapolis-St. Paul. Arriving in Milwaukee a short time later, we were again advised that the storms were still out there and were getting worse. Even though I was a co-pilot and therefore second-in-command, our pilot flight engineer, Bob Mooney, Uncle Moon we called him, was way senior to me having been hired in 1958 or so. He was a member of the famous 272 group of former co-pilots who had volunteered to become flight engineers at Eastern in 1962 or so. As my main duty was only to get the clearance and laugh when the captain told a joke, I was not involved, involved very much in the fuel planning of our flight. Mainly it was the captain who decided how much, and the flight engineer who made sure it was loaded properly. As Charlie had just flown his very his, this very trip the previous week and then had in the right seat for the last three legs, Chicago, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Chicago, Chicago Chief Pilot Chuck Blanchard to route check Charlie, he decided to take the same fuel load as Chuck had recommended that day. This was minimum fuel from Chicago all the way to Minneapolis-St. Paul, as apparently Milwaukee had a high tax on fuel and was before the days of fuel uh, planning book. That was before the days of the fuel planning book. Anyhow, Chuck had made his recommendation based on the good weather that existed the previous week. So we blasted off from Chicago up to Milwaukee and then northwest towards Minneapolis-St. Paul in good old aircraft number 861. We had about half a load of folks and not a whole lot of of 115-145 octane gas. Approaching the Nodine VOR, we could really see that dispatch had been telling the truth about the towering thunderstorms. Even our antiquated radar could see it. This was way before the days of a radar summary in operations. Color radars, reliable help from ATC as regards storms and many other aids that we take for granted today. As we were on an instrument approach, an instrument flight plan I should say, the captain told me to advise ATC and we would attempt to descend and pick our way through under the storms, as no way we could top them in a DC-7. This plan failed immediately because this was a solid squall line with black and green roll clouds as well as loads of lightning. And it extended many miles both north and south. So we reversed course and when back in the clear, decided to go around it to the south. After a while, it was clear that it went to Mexico or further beyond. So back in the north, uh, to the north we went. We got way up into northern Wisconsin where we started to get very concerned about getting through to Minneapolis-St. Paul at all. At this time, some 90 minutes after our diversions had started, Charlie announced that We did not have enough fuel to return to Milwaukee and that we had to land somewhere, PDQ, pretty darn quick. Now, this was not fun anymore. Uncle Moon was spinning that E6B like a top as he translated the fuel pounds in the main tanks that we never put fuel in the alternates with our DC-7 short haul operations at Eastern into gallons he swore he could see the needles falling as we were very low and because the stations on the eastern airlines radio net were few and far between out there we had a very little contact with dispatch most were attempts to just establish communications which then promptly faded out we were in contact with atc of course and they were now getting as concerned as we were This was not a jet up at 35,000 feet going 500 miles per hour, diverting around the tops. We were way down in the trenches at 240 miles per hour. I had been into Volk Field, this military field, in northern Wisconsin while flying in the Air National Guards. And as we were not too far away by now, I suggested this field as an alternate. But since it was not a civilian airport, Charlie decided to not go there and turn back to the south. We then got the word from ATC that Mason City, Iowa, was still southeast of the squall line. So we set sail for it. A long way, but we had the fuel to make it, barely. As we approached Mason City, the storms were forcing us to divert further to the the southeast. The company was now trying to contact us through ATC, and ATC itself was telling us that Mason City was now being bombarded with hail and lightning. This was getting serious. Uncle Moon, our flight engineer, was now twirling that E6B so much it was smoking. And he was really getting bad numbers. We were running out of gas. I don't mean so low that we have to head for an alternate, but engine quitting type out of gas. Remember that we took minimum fuel out of Chicago and none out of Milwaukee some hours ago. We could not find a suitable airport that had good weather, and that was that. Dispatch was unable to talk to us due to our low altitude and thus help us out. The storms were hurtling southeast and continuing to push us ahead of them. ATC, too, was getting about as upset as we were. They then spotted Waterloo, Iowa, and on their screens and advised we could probably beat the storms there. Not sure, but most likely. It had a very short runway, about 4,000 feet, as I recall, which normally was way too short for DC-7. But we were almost out of gas, and therefore much lighter than usual. Any port in the storm certainly applied here. With no other plan, we turned towards Waterloo, with the gauges bouncing on empty, like no gas. As our emergency was now in full progress, ATC cleared all planes out of our way and gave us vectors to the airport. We had to take their word for it, all as we had no approach charts and could not see as we were still in the weather. This was scary. We were getting constant mileage advisories to the airport and about 15 miles out, Uncle Moon told us that the gauges showed basically empty, E-M-P-T-Y. So upon us advising ATC of this, they told a branded flight on final approach of us to go around, leaving the runway completely open. We saw it about five miles out, and with a great sigh of relief by all concerned, we landed with all props still turning. We even made the midfield turnoff as we were in a very light plane. As we cleared the runway, Charlie said, Boy, I am in trouble now. We barely beat the storm's end, so I just sat there and gave thanks. Forget the trouble for now. After things calmed down and the squall line went on through, we got most of the passengers on the Brandiff plane barely, The rest just disappeared as our flight was canceled. Now, what to do? Eastern then, via telephone, really got involved in planning to get the crew and plane back to Chicago. But no suitable fuel was available on the airport, only 100 octane. Some 15 hours later, they came up with a plan after checking with Pratt & Whitney as well as the FAA. We were to fill up the alternate fuel tanks with a hundred octane and ferry the aircraft with the engines in auto rich pulling very little power. The plane would then be ferried to Miami so those alternate tanks could be purged. We did this arriving in Chicago about midnight. Captain Jim Batson, a former roommate of Charlie's when they were new hires, was there with his crew to ferry 861 to Miami he did not miss the chance to razz us and I can recall him as clear as if last night when he said Charlie I have told you a thousand times to know where you are going and to have enough gas to get there I learned a cheap lesson one of one of many that day and never forgot what Jim Batson said I have repeated it many times to my first officers and second officers and flight, en- and flight engineers over at ATA throughout the years. Also, to any other pilot that stood still long enough to listen to me, a true, a good rule. Now the sequel to the story. This story became a famous one at Eastern back then and more so at Chicago. We wrote a lot of reports and while the FAA was not wild about the crew's judgment on the fuel load and lack of positive decision, lots of indecisions, for such a long time they stated that since no one uh, was bent, that nothing was bent, nothing was bent, nothing would come of it. For some reason, they seemed to be more on dispatch's tail than ours. I never quite understood that. Charlie Mardigan had no middle name, so he adopted Napoleon as he had met his Waterloo and actually had it engraved on his flight bag. Later, he proudly showed it to me. Another favorable result of that day was that he never forgot me. And on our latter flights, later flights, I should say, I did not have to listen to him again, relate his many marital difficulties. He knew I had heard all of the stories. I must dispel another long-standing story that I heard many times over the years, this tale being that in the midst of our sojourn around the countryside, Charlie had the uh, the pilot flight engineer uncle moon make a pa announcement about what was going on while he was doing this charlie spotted a cloud straight ahead and made a violent turn to the left to miss it supposedly he then looked down at the radar and noticed a wide area of iso echoes which were only ground returns on the screen Certain that he had mistakenly turned into the large mass of thunderstorms, he hollered out, we are, you know what, E.D., Ed. And the story goes that this went out over the PA into the cabin. Sorry, folks, it never happened. The PA system was the last thing we were thinking or not thinking about that day. Jim Holder. Eastern Airlines presents a flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On
1: an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own.
0: This article was found in the Pitcairn News Wing of the Pitcairn Aviation Newsletter. It was dated December 1928. Its title, 25 Years of Flight. On December 17, 1903, Orville Wright, the younger of the then-unknown Wright brothers, made the first flight. For four years, he and his brother, Wilbur, had studied, experimented, designed, tested, and worked unceasingly to build a flying machine. Only three days previous, the machine was ready. Winning the toss of a coin, Wilbur Wright had got the machine off the ground, only to have to have it ascend too steeply, and come down to earth in a minor crash. The next two days were spent in repairing the damage. Now it was Orville's turn. The machine stood on its skids on a wooden runway, held by a cable while the motor was warmed up. Only five spectators were present as Orville Wright climbed into the machine. The cable was released, and while Wilbur ran alongside to steady one of the wings, Orville started the craft along the runway into the face of a 27-mile wind. After a 40-foot run, the machine rose from the ground and pursued an erratic course of flight for a distance of 120 feet in 12 seconds and came down to earth undamaged at as high an elevation as it had left. The first flight had been made in the first airplane by Orville Wright, the first pilot. To commemorate the 25th anniversary of this great event and to honor the two brothers who together developed the first successful airplane, President Coolidge called an international Civil Aeronautics Conference in Washington on December twelfth. There gathered the leaders of the aviation industry from all over the world. In a three-day conference, international problems of air transportation were discussed and debated. On the day of the opening of the conference, the United States Post Office Sponsors of the greatest organized air transport system in the world issued a special two-cent stamp and a special five-cent airmail stamp to commemorate the occasion. Five days later, the delegates to the conference travel from Washington to the little town of Kitty Hawk in North Carolina to further honor the Wright Brothers by the dedication of a shaft erected on the spot of the first flight. Once more, the post office department saw fit to appropriately honor the first pilot and his brother. Postmaster General New had authorized a special airmail cancellation for the Kitty Hawk Post Office on December 17th. An attempt was made to provide a striking illustration of the development of the Wright brothers' flying machine of 1903 into the male plane of today. To this end, our assistant operations manager, H.A. Elliott, flew from Richmond to Kitty Hawk to locate a suitable landing place from which our super male wings could take the hundreds of thousands of letters on this special flight. But irony of fate, the development of the airplane airplane had been so great that the spot that was especially selected as the best in the country for the trial flights of the 35 mile an hour Wright machine of 1903 proved upon inspection to be unsafe for a super mail wing with its 500 pounds of mail and its top speed of 135 miles an hour. So the special mail from Kitty Hawk was taken by truck to the nearest safe landing field where it was transferred to the Pitcairn planes and flown north and south over the New York-Atlanta-Miami airway. What more convincing illustration of the marvelous progress of these 25 years of flight can be offered than the simple fact that within 48 hours, all of this special airmail was delivered to the most remote cities of California, Oregon, and Washington, over 3,000 miles from Kitty Hawk.
1: Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. I wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern shuttle has always been very efficient. It's become even more so with the improvements.
0: Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus.
1: You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. This is another story from the Wings of Man. The article is entitled Eastern Becomes the Leading Airline to the Caribbean written by Roland Moore with Adriana Couricet and Jarek Buildings. Starts off the relationship between Lawrence S. Rockefeller and Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. When I arrived at my first job at Eastern Airlines in New York in 1970 as a young lawyer in the legal department fresh out of law school I had no clue about what I would be doing or getting myself into. All I knew was that I would be reported to William R. Howard, VP Legal. Mr. Howard explained essentially what routine and non-routine tasks are performed in a corporate legal environment and it was pretty daunting to me at first. I learned rather quickly that law school does not necessarily prepare one for the reality of the business world. He handed me some files that he wanted me to read so he discussed them with me. They were complex legal documents that on their face did not seem to have anything to do with an airline. Little did I know that Eastern was in the hotel business with its then largest shareholder, a gentleman named Lawrence S. Rockefeller. That really caught me by surprise. I started reading about joint ventures that Eastern had with a company called Rock Resorts and the Dill Rock Eastern Company along with Mr. Rockefeller's Olahana and Dillingham corporations. Reading on, I saw that in the planning stages was a large $250 million recreational, tourist, and residential development of some 20 square miles on the Kohala coast on the Big Island of Hawaii. Very senior executives at Easton were involved, including Todd Cole, Floyd Hall, Charles Simons, and Mr. Howard. As part of his rock resorts, Mr. Rockefeller owned resorts in the Caribbean in exotic places such as Caneel Bay on St. John, Little Dick's Bay on Virgin Gorda, and Dorado Beach in Puerto Rico. Thanks in part to Mr. Rockefeller's relationship with Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, Eastern was involved in playing an important role in becoming the leading airline to the Caribbean. The more I came to understand the relationship that Mr. Rockefeller had with Eastern executives and how the relationship of some long standing between him and Captain Eddie evolved, the more interesting it became. Little was known among the rank and file of the Eastern family about this relationship. While Mr. Rockefeller made money in many different ways, history shows that he was quick to recognize the importance of the airline industry, along with the growth potential. He felt he shared energy fields with the aviators such as Eddie Rickenbacker and Charles Lindbergh, both whom became close friends. Because of the relationship with Captain Eddie, Rockefeller provided funds to help Captain Eddie buy Eastern from General Motors. He also funded the Glenn L. Martin Company to produce the Martin 404 for Eastern. Two of Mr. Rockefeller's trusted representatives, Peter O'Crisp and Harper Woodward, served on Eastern's board of directors. Barbara Daniel, Floyd Hall's assistant at our 10 Rockefeller Plaza headquarters, worked closely with these two gentlemen, preparing board agendas and minutes of meetings, and I was privileged to meet both in our office on the 14th floor. Between 1956 and 1969, Mr. Rockefeller had combined his personal venture capital to promote ecotourism through the rock resorts. He was personally involved in developing areas and buying land in the Caribbean where, like in the Virgin Islands and at Kenil Bay, they were very isolated and remote at the time. He wanted to build resorts where his guests could swim, snorkel, and sleep, and eat well, but not in luxury, and he wanted his resorts to melt into the landscape. So this is how his adventures and later mine got started. Build and promote and make certain there was an airline to fly his guests. Mr. Rockefeller's love of the Caribbean became my love for some 25 years of my Eastern career as I became involved in a lia- liaison capacity, starting with Eastern building the first convention hotel in the Caribbean, the Saramar Beach Hotel, next to the Dorado Beach Hotel and Golf Club. Eventually, I became a vice president of Dorado Beach Development an Eastern subsidiary with another Eastern colleague and former Rockefeller executive, Lewis Hulk. The story of Dorado Beach in Puerto Rico is legendary, and Eastern played a major role in how this pristine beach along the northern coast of Puerto Rico, west of San Juan, came to be what it is today. Clara E. Livingston had inherited the Dorado Beach coconut and grapefruit plantation from her father, Alfred, in 1925 at age 25. She became the 200th licensed female pilot and became the 11th female helicopter pilot in the world. A Civil Air Patrol member during World War II and later Puerto Rico C.A.P. Wing Commander, she had built her own airport on the property. Here her friend Amelia Earhart stopped on her last flight in 1937. Clara Livingston was a tough lady who, sporting a shotgun, allegedly threatened government officials to get off her land. Mr. Rockefeller wanted to buy the plantation to build a resort, resort and Miss Livingston absolutely refused to entertain his office offer. So what did Mr. Rockefeller do? He called on his friend and partner, Eddie Rickenbacker, to come down and play golf. Rockefeller knew that aviatric Miss Livingston idolized the captain. They met, and Captain Eddie convinced her to sell. The Eastern Airlines-Rock Resorts relationship was almost an instant success, and it was the wisdom and determination that Rickenbacker and Rockefeller shared that brought it about. In 1959, when Cuba, up to that time, had the best resorts in the Caribbean, fell into a communist state under Fidel Castro, the North American travel market went into turmoil. The two men saw the opportunity to switch the travel market to the Eastern Caribbean, and Eastern started nonstop flights to San Juan from New York and later to St. Thomas. Within six weeks of opening, the Dorado Beach Resort went from a projected four-month winter operation to year-round. Puerto Rico was undergoing a major trans- transformation in the form of Operation Bootstrap with Jose Teodoro, Moscosco Mora, and Luis Munoz Marin, and they wanted Eastern to transport thousands of visitors and business people to the island to support the growing economy. We at Eastern promoted a low fare, which was very popular with the Puerto Rican community living in, in New York. I remember the panic at our office one day when an L-1011 flight from JFK to San Juan, was oversold at Christmas by 600 passengers. To promote the Caribbean early in the 70s, Eastern wanted to expand further down island and became aware that Caribbean Atlantic Airlines, Caribbear was for sale. But it was a political hot potato in getting the Civil Aeronautics Board to review Eastern to allow to buy it. Unbeknownst to me, in 1972, Mr. Rockefeller, who was not politically active, sent then-President Richard Nixon a telegram, urging him to approve the acquisition of Carabare, and it was approved. This further changed the landscape in the Lower Caribbean, and I was privileged to be a part of it, working on financing doc- documents with respect to Carabair Douglas DC-9s that were needed to serve the smaller markets in the region. After shut shutdown in 1991, sadly I was given the task of selling off Some 800 acres of land around Dorado Beach was eastern owned. We had an airport parcel, land surrounding beautiful Robert Trent Jones golf course, and oceanfront parcels. I was determined that we tried to preserve as much of the pristine area as Mr. Rockefeller would have wanted. Parcel F was a pristine terra carpus forest. One day I was approached by realtors representing Delco Ramey from South Bend, Indiana who wanted to buy more than 900 acres from eastern abutting the beautiful South Sierra Mora golf course. I cringed at the thought there might be a factory, battery factory on the land, and I did not tell senior management about the offer. Instead, we sold the property to Frederico Stubel, who also represented the Rockefeller legacy, and he built million dollar homes that helped preserve Dorado as a very valuable enclave. And he eventually bought what became the Hyatt Hotel and now, Ritz Carlton.
0: Brian, look! This new no kind of plane! That's Eastern's new Boeing 727 jet. Look how high the tail is! 34 feet! Look where they put the jets! In the tail assembly. That's one reason it's so quiet. The passengers are always riding ahead of the sound. Where does it fly to? I don't know. It flies north. You can hightail it on Eastern's new 727 jetliner to Washington, Philadelphia, and Boston. And a unique new dining service is worth writing home about. Choose from a selection of superb entrees like lobster Newburg, filet mignon with Bordelaise sauce, prepared as you like it. Eastern 727 jet, quiet as a library. The smartest way to leave town? Come fly with Eastern.
1: This story comes up to us from the book, The Wings of Man. The article is called Snap Decision by Helen McLaughlin, and it tells us about a, a very f- famous woman in the history of Eastern. Her name was Edwina Winnie Gilbert. The first female vice president of Eastern Airlines worked up to an executive office from being a flight attendant. In 1956, I made a snap decision. Edwina Winnie Gilbert declared with a snap of her fingers. I was tired of working a nine-to-five job as a bank teller and also being a full-time student at the University of Miami. I was driving down Northwest 36th Street in Miami when I noticed an eastern stewardess crossing the street. It flashed through my mind that being a stewardess would get me out of my rut and it would be a refreshing change of pace from the hectic life I've been leading, trying to juggle my job and school. Winnie parked her car near Eastern's headquarters and walked into the personnel department. Several hours later, she walked out as Eastern's newest newest stewardess trainee. At a very young age, she had a natural spontaneity about life. Born in White Plains, New York, her parents moved often, and she had to constantly adjust to new places and people. Winnie was in eight schools in one year when she was a small child. Her family moved to Miami and Winnie later graduated from Miami Edison High School. She majored in science at the University of Miami because she wanted to excel and be like Madame Curie. However, this didn't work out for Winnie, so she joined a management trainee program for the First National Bank. At the same time, she continued to take classes at the University. Her working career changed a great deal when she joined Eastern. She was correct in assuming that the job would be an interesting way to travel and to learn about the world and aviation. Winnie loved her job, but she also wanted to get married. In the 1960s, Eastern stewardesses were not permitted to be married, and she quietly rebelled along with other stools. On the sly, she married Frank Gilbert and kept her job. Her husband never answered the phone in case it was Eastern's scheduling department. But it wasn't long before the constant traveling and trying to keep her marital status a secret made her life very difficult. She typed a letter of resignation, but before she could turn it in, Eastern offered, offered her promotion to instructor of stewardesses in Miami. Winnie accepted, and three years later became the manager of the school. Winnie handled the management of the training school with ease. Her position as manager of the flight attendants involved her with upper management. Even though Winnie didn't have the required college degree, she knew she could handle more responsibility. In 1971, she was called into a company meeting and she thought she might be offered the directorship of in-flight training. Instead, Winnie was promoted over the current director to division vice president in-flight services supervising seven eastern bases and 3,200 flight attendants. She was overwhelmed and realized it was tremendous obligation Winnie talked it over with her husband Frank, the job paid $75,000 a year and she would be the first woman VP at Eastern. In fact, the first woman VP of any US airline. She accepted. In her own way, Winnie was very much in favor of the women's movement and she had fought against male prejudice at the corporate level. Promoted again in 1987 to Vice President of In-flight Services, Winnie made spontaneous decisions directed more than 6,000 flight attendants. She managed a $295 million yearly budget to maintain Eastern's quality of in-flight service and saw to it that passengers received safe, friendly, and courteous service. Winnie tried her best to keep her employees happy. In fact, she tried a new concept to keep from furloughing and laying off flight attendants. Her program enabled senior flight attendants to take an unpaid leave of absence and let Eastern cut costs by keeping its junior flight attendants. A flight attendant was allowed up to one and a half years of maternity leave, using their sick leave, and then six months with no pay. An additional six months after the baby's birth was allowed if she elected to nurse her baby. In this way, flight attendants retained their jobs until they returned to active status. Moreover, Eastern had an employee profit sharing plan and an employee stock purchase plan when he kept abreast of the problems of labor management and was there at the last in an effort to save eastern
0: since the days of the ancient mayans one thing hasn't changed when mexican people celebrate mexican people dance Summer savings. You can vacation in Mexico this year for the same kind of money you spent last year. Call Eastern or your travel agent. It's easy to take the vacation you thought you couldn't take. We make it easier to fly.
1: This next story was written by Lou Lyles, who spent 39 years as an Eastern employee starting in 1944 and retired in 1983. He spent his time in maintenance in Miami for the most part. And I think Lou's story gives us a real sense of the camaraderie and the sense of family that existed at Eastern back in those days. His article is entitled, Engine Overhaul, the Heart of the Airline. First part is working in the motor shop. While attending college, I learned to fly and later performed maintenance on military aircraft. This sparked my interest in aviation. I applied with Eastern as an apprentice mechanic and happily was hired, pleased to be part of the aviation industry and with a company whose leadership philosophy was safe transportation from point A to point B. Captain Eddie Rickenbacker was a stickler about safety even though we saw him touching an engine and complaining if it was cold. He wanted the most from his equipment and his employees although he treated everyone kindly. In 1946, I transferred from line maintenance to engine overhaul. At that time it was known simply as the motor shop. It was difficult to transfer and as many desired to work there because of the, all the day shifts with weekends off and indoors sheltered from the heat of the subtropics. At that time, Johnny Ray, who was the first mechanic hired by Eastern, was the superintendent of the motor shop. Many years later, the management personnel of Engine Overhaul attended a retirement dinner for Johnny at the Columbus Hotel in downtown Miami. Here he was presented with a silver tray by Tony Patiski to commemorate his years of service. Tony followed Johnny's footsteps, becoming the next superintendent of engine overhaul for many years. After Tony was assigned to another position in 1966, Ed Patry was assigned as superintendent of parts support, while I was made superintendent of production in the engine service center. During my early days with Eastern, one night while flying as a C-3 passenger on a flight from Atlanta to Miami, a problem was experienced with the left engine on a Martin 404. The problem arose after landing in Albany, Georgia, where the engine would not start. The aircraft and its passengers were delayed. Identifying myself to the captain, whom I think was Owens, I told him I was a licensed mechanic and would be glad to try to find the problem. He agreed to let me try. After removing the firewall from the engine, I soon found that the electric cable to the starter had broken. Informing the captain of the problem, I suggested that I hold the cable till the starter until the engine turned, and then secure the cable to prevent it from moving during the flight. Atlanta Maintenance was contacted and agreed the plan was satisfactory. The flight could then be continued to Miami. After Albany, the flight had scheduled stops at Tallahassee and Tampa. This meant I had to hold the cable on the starter at the next two stops. I boarded the aircraft using its rear steps. Yes, it was a breezy experience as I replaced the firewall and got back on board. Being the last passenger to board at Albany, Tallahassee, and Tampa created puzzled looks from the regular passengers. The Motor Shop Annual Picnic In the early days, the motor shop had a picnic for their employees each year. The occasion was held at the Curtis Mansion, home of the late, famous aviation pioneer Glenn H. Curtis. There were spacious grounds for activities, such as softball and horseshoe pitching, and there was a large swimming pool. Food was provided by a caterer and served to attendees by volunteers from the motor shop. One of the main activities at the picnic was gambling, with different card games as well as a craps table. The craps table was the one Captain Eddie enjoyed most. Players at the table were people associated with the various aircraft industries from around the country. These people look forward to attending the picnic each year, as with the gathering of old friends. Captain Eddie entertained those at the crap table with his actions and comments. One thing he liked to do was pick up the bets, the money, even though he didn't make the number he was supposed to on his throw. He would smilingly remark, "This is for expenses," and this comment was well received by those participating. In my travels to different parts of the country, I would be asked by those who had previously attended. What's the date for the next picnic? Eastern tried to develop and improve its employees, professionally and socially. Professionally, the company held what was termed a staff meeting annually at a Miami Beach hotel. Attendees from engine overhaul, aircraft maintenance, sales, and other departments were required to provide a report of their activities during the past year. These were submitted to Captain Eddie. At the meeting, each attendee was required to read his report and answer any questions a captain might have. Giving this report to an audience numbering several hundred and not being accustomed to public speaking caused some nervousness. One purpose was to train junior management for higher-level positions, which required speeches. Captain Eddie, sensing nervousness in a speaker, would try to soothe the person by holding his shaking leg while he gave his report. Another story was related to the problem of mishandled baggage. Captain Eddie had the luggage of those participants from out of town intercepted and held, his point being to let the employee experience the customer's problems. Eastern used a mechanic to make coffee because the liquid from vending machines was so awful. Instead of regulated coffee breaks, mechanics were allowed to have coffee whenever they felt the need. Morale was good. This was the best coffee in town. A management council was created by Eastern. Its purpose was to bring different levels of management in contact with each other on a social basis. Meetings were held monthly with a cocktail hour, dinner, and a guest speaker. They concluded with a drawing for prizes. A dinner dance was also held annually for members and their wives or dates. In my opinion, it served its purpose. Early in the 1950s, local Miami station WTVJ had a weekly program hosted by Lee Dickens on different industries in the city. Eastern was selected for one of her shows. I was asked to accompany Lee to various sites of Eastern's operations and speak about what was going on at each. The program was popular and maintenance, overhaul shops, and flight personnel participated in the presentation. This was very good advertising for Eastern and demonstrated different aspects of aviation to the public and stimulated an interest in flying. Captain Eddie's benevolent nature was further evidenced by the fact he tried to always promote from within, and if an employee became handicapped, he tried to find a way to keep them employed. A great example was Jesse Thrash, one of our ace mechanics who suffered a degenerate eye disease and lost his vision over a period of years. Jesse attended the Miami House School for the Blind and became so adept at working in the dark, he rewired his stove at home wash windows at 11 p.m., and trim the hedges. He learned braille and knew how to type, so he kept the parts records in both ways so other mechanics could find what they needed. This was, of course, B.C., that is, before computers. After six years as a mechanic, I was promoted to technical foreman and later to production foreman at Eastern's Engine Overhaul Center. Five years later, I was assigned as the representative of Eastern at the Curtis Wright Corporation, then a manufacturer of aircraft engines, in Woodbridge, New Jersey. There I coordinated business transactions between Eastern and the manufacturer and monitored the quality of the Wright Cyclone engines in the R3350 double-row turbo-cyclone turbo compounds used on the Super Constellations and DC-7s. I remained at Curtis Wright for two and a half years and returned to Miami in June of 1958. Shortly afterward, I became General Foreman of Engine Production and held that position until 1966 when I was promoted to Superintendent of Jet Engine Overhaul. In 1973, I was made Manager of Engine Production and one year later, to Manager of Budgets and Projects for the Engine Servicing Center. From 1976 until September of 1983, I worked as a Senior Analyst in the development of computerized programs for processing aircraft engines. I retired from Eastern in September 1983 and continued working as an aviation consultant for six years. While with Curtis Wright, I met my wife Marge on a flight to Miami for a management meeting. At the time she was a stewardess for Eastern and five years later in May 1963 we were married. Our daughter Catherine was born in in February 1966. They both have been and still are a joy in my life. An added to joy to our family is Chris Shelley, our son-in-law, and engineered with Samtec Incorporated. Eastern had dedicated employees in all its departments, and the united efforts of flight crews, mechanics, online personnel, reservations, ticket counter, sales, and thousands more kept the grand lady flying for many years.
0: On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in Cabin 2 just for discount
1: travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New
0: York. Eastern's Transcon. For Harry Lindquist and myself... Thank you for tuning us in today. We hope you will come back and listen to more stories and memories of the world's greatest airline. Stories of its people and planes as told by the Eastern family. If you missed the 8 p.m. scheduled radio show, don't worry, as it will be in the active file on the Internet in the archive at blogtalkradio.com forward slash C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, Captain Eddie. The episodes are listed by numbers with the highest number, the latest broadcast. Since this is our eighth broadcast, and each episode usually has seven to eight stories, you will have some great memories to catch up on if you are a first-time listener. We hope to turn you into a regular listener with these fascinating Eastern stories. Now, if you have a story about Eastern Airlines that you would like to share with others and tell your part of the Eastern memories, why not send it to us? Our email is e.neilholland at yahoo.com. That's enealholland at yahoo.com. We'll record it and give you the credit on the air. Now, until next week, we'll sign off with the familiar theme music of our beloved airline, Eastern Airlines. Good night.